Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. You're listening to the theme music of one of the most forward-thinking films of all time. In 1927, Fritz Lang presented the world with the silent film Metropolis, a now legendary black and white about a city we might one day find ourselves living in. One of the central characters is an advanced robot called Maria, who is so emotionally in tune with human beings that men can fall in love with her. Well, the future is now. Sort of. Maybe you're smiling from the inside. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) That's Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, having a laugh with Sophia. She's the first artificially intelligent robot to become a citizen of a country, that's Saudi Arabia, in 2017. She's also been appointed the United Nations' first innovation champion. But as advanced as she is, she admits she still has a long way to go to catch up with Metropolis's Maria. Do you have emotions? I do not have feelings in the same way you have feelings. It's sort of like how the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon may not have any light of its own, but we still say that the moon shines. In much the same way, robots and AI reflect the emotions and values of the people who make us. What does your creator value most? Even robots are prepared to admit that they lack one of the crucial elements that makes human beings human. Some can express emotions. A few can detect emotions. More on that in a little while. But the real question is, do they experience emotion? Some think we might not be too far away from that, from AI actually having feelings. I mean, there was a time when artificial intelligence itself was just a pipe dream, so why not this emotional threshold as well? AI already assists me in tons of daily things that make me human. Hey Siri, remind me tomorrow to tell Director Mark he's awesome. Hmm, I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? Oh well, I tried. The question is, will AI ever desire to praise Mark? Or perhaps buy flowers for my wife? Will it have emotional, affective intelligence? We'd like to think so. Otherwise, there goes the plotline of Pixar's most famous robot. Wally. 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 
<laughs> Wally and Eve fall in love, a quintessential human emotion. Kids films aside, is there any grown-up reason to think that won't happen one day? And if it does happen, what will it mean? Will it mean we humans have magically turned machines into persons? Or might it mean we humans are, in the end, just machines? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Bully Pulpit, by Michael J. Kruger. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if this hour of undeceiving isn't enough, join the Undeceptions Plus community for just $5 Aussie a month. You'll get extended interviews with my guests, bonus episodes, exclusive live Facebook events, and tons of other extras. Undeceptions.com forward slash plus. See you there. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course. Or, even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Well, Rosalind, thank you so much for uh, talking to me in, the, in my, this wonderful workspace. For... What is this work? Rosalind Picard is a legend. I've been looking forward to introducing you to her ever since I visited her lab at MIT across the river from Boston. Rosalind, Ros, is Professor of Media, Arts and Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, the top-rated science university in the world. She's also the founder and director of the Affective Computing Research Group at MIT Media Lab. Roz is a bit of a da Vinci among scholars. She's a scientist, an inventor, an author of groundbreaking books in the area of computing science, and her work has influenced many fields beyond her specialty, from video games to lawmaking. And she has the coolest office I've ever seen. What is this workspace? I, I wish we were video because uh, I, I wish the audience could see. It's these. a colourful place. It's a colourful place, but all those machines out there and there, there even seems like a steering wheel car yeah, thing. Yep, and- yep. There's a little kid's car for helping kids in the hospital transitioning yeah. to surgery. There's a driving simulator for understanding people's experience behind the wheel of a car. There are lots of uh, tangible devices for interacting with the digital world through the physical world yeah. uh, that my colleague Hiroshi Ishii has developed. We we have open spaces here where we collaborate across lots of different uh, fields of expertise. 
Roz is working on direct applications of artificial intelligence to the human condition. The media release accompanying her book, Affective Computing, explains the goal. According to Rosalind Picard, if we want computers to be genuinely intelligent and to interact naturally with us, we must give computers the ability to recognise, understand, even to have and express emotions. Okay, so um, people have a vague idea of what AI is, right? Okay, so you know we've seen the movie. Um, but what is emotion AI and therefore effective computing? Affective computing, not effective computing. Affective computing with an A. The original idea was to give computers the skills of emotional intelligence and to use the ways that emotions help people be more intelligent to help computers be more intelligent. Also, the idea was to show respect for human feelings. In an interaction with a computer where it's trying to uh, work with you and maybe surmise what you want, and you get really frustrated with it, if it can't see that what it's doing is frustrating you, then it's likely to keep doing things that really annoy you. And that's not only bad usability, that's just being rude to people. Now, is this because you're not the typical uh, nerdy scientist? You're a more affective kind of scientist? Is this how you got into it? Uh, on the contrary, I'm quite the nerdy scientist. <laughs> I met my husband in the computer room at MIT on a Friday night. It, it really couldn't be nerdier. And when I started learning how important emotion was in the brain, I actually did not want to work on it because I thought that it would ruin my reputation as a serious scientist, especially as a woman in science. So it was. Oh, the, of course, the woman scientist would be emotional. Exactly, oh. exactly. And I thought people, I thought it would undo my career. Mm-hmm. I actually tried to get guys to work on it when I started seeing how important emotion was in the brain. And there were some excellent uh, male neuroscientists who had done outstanding work on it, and female neuroscientists who'd done outstanding work on it. So I thought, you know, maybe it should just stay there. But the more I looked at the problems in AI and how they were running into walls with the goals they were trying to achieve, I realized that they were missing a lot of what makes people intelligent. And that's the affective states that even tell our brain that something matters, yeah. uh, that something, one thing is more important than another thing. In a 2007 article, Roz described the importance of robots detecting our emotions this way. Imagine your robot entering the kitchen as you prepare breakfast for guests. The robot looks happy to see you and greets you with a cheery, Good morning! You mumble something it does not understand. It notices your face, vocal tone, smoke above the stove, and your slamming of a pot into the sink, and infers that you do not appear to be having a good morning. Immediately, it adjusts its internal state to subdued, which has the effect of lowering its vocal pitch and amplitude settings, eliminating cheery behavioural displays and suppressing unnecessary conversation. Suppose you exclaim, Ow! Yanking your hand from the hot stove, rushing to run your fingers under cold water, adding, I can't believe I ruined the sauce! While the robot's speech recognition may not have high confidence that it accurately recognised all of your words, its assessment of your effect and actions indicates a high probability that you are upset and may be hurt. If AI is ever genuinely going to interact with us as humans, it needs to process more than surface-level information. It needs to detect and interpret emotional signals. This isn't just aesthetically pleasing or psychologically satisfying for us. It has serious practical implications. Can you give me some practical applications that you and your team have been uh, working on? Our first applications were related to improving the user experience in an interaction. Some people might remember years ago when Microsoft had this uh, paperclip that would pop up and have little eyes and a little paperclip body. It had different bodies in different cultures. Uh, and it would try to help you. It would try to bring a face and uh, mind to a help service. And people liked that things were acting in a more social and natural way. But this clip, while it was outstanding at knowing that you were writing a letter or what you were doing, it had no idea if you were pleased or displeased with the kind of advice it was giving you. 
You couldn't even say you like. Some of you won't have any memory of Clippy. It was discarded. Microsoft ended up even using Clippy in an ad to explain why the new Microsoft XP operating system would come as a relief to everyone. Why, hello there. I'm leveraging real-time, legacy-compliant collaborative micro-branding to complete the most important project in my company's history. As soon as I finish this proposal, I... It looks like you're writing a letter. Oh! Would you like help? You, you little metallic... You little metallic... Hmm. Try rephrasing your query. For example, print multiple copies of a file will lead to... Stop! Listen. Next to Microsoft, Bob, you are the most annoying thing in computer history. You know Bob. He's a friend of mine. Clippy and its immediate successes lacked something crucial to the machine-human interface. Any clue about how the user felt. You couldn't even say you like it or don't like it back then. You just could, uh, you know, accept its advice. Which if you were to put a human in that situation where you're like really frustrated about something in your office and you've got a deadline and some human walks in smiling and winking and dancing at you and offering you help and giving you useless advice uh, and not noticing that you're getting annoyed at it and trying to shoo it out of your office. Uh, you would never want that human back in your office, right? Unless they apologized and looked sorry for their mistake. Uh, but the AIs were completely oblivious to human emotion. They thought intelligence was just about knowing what you're doing and being so smart and how to help you. Uh, and instead, they were seen as very offensive and rude. So that was just one example where we started trying to bring emotional intelligence into an interaction. Robots like Saudi Arabia's Sophia can frown or smile depending on the external situation. But actually detecting human emotions is the real goal. Roz has helped found two companies that aim at just that, Affectiva and Empatica. Empatica is particularly devoted to helping people by creating technology that measures human responses. The Embrace Watch is an example of tech that listens to us at a deeper level. Roz and her team showed that wearable sensors can measure physiological changes in our body that correspond to emotions. The Embrace Watch can also help identify seizures that might be life-threatening. And the story of this discovery is great. One of Roz's students took some sensors home to see how his little brother, who couldn't speak, was experiencing stress. Roz says she was monitoring the data that showed him as calm as could be for days on end. And then things changed dramatically. I go the next day and my jaw drops. One of his wrist signals indicating an autonomic change in his physiology, showing usually with high stress, had shot up so high that I thought the sensor must be broken. Uh, we have tried to stress people out at MIT every way imaginable, from Boston driving to qualifying exams, <laughs> and I'd never seen a signal so high. Wow. And the weird thing is it was happening on only one side. How on earth can you be stressed on one side of your body and not the other? I figured one or both of our sensors were broken. Well, as an engineer, I engaged in some debugging. Nothing could explain it. Uh, I finally resorted to the oldest style of debugging. I picked up the phone and called the student on vacation. Hi, uh, how is your vacation? How's your Christmas? How's your little brother? Uh, do you know what happened to him? And I gave the exact date and time in this data. And he says, I don't know. I'll check the diary. And I said a quick, silent prayer, like diary, like really, like what are the odds some teenage student, you know, has written this down? Well, he comes back. He has the exact date and time written down. He says that was right before he had a grand mal seizure. Mm. Now, I didn't know anything really about seizures except some hearsay. I started doing some quick research on that, learned that another student's father was head of epilepsy surgery over at Boston Children's Hospital, screwed up my courage, called him and said, Dr. Madsen, is it possible that somebody could have a huge, I want to sound scientific here, a huge sympathetic nervous system surge on one wrist 20 minutes before a seizure? Dr. Madsen became engaged in the project, and before long, Roz's team had sensor devices certified, and 24-7 tests began with 90 families. 
And we found 100% of the grand mal seizures had this big response, not 20 minutes before the seizure, but usually precisely synchronized with when the brain activity showed the seizure. And so we couldn't build a forecast then, although today now uh, um, it is looking possible. Some nice work was just published showing we can forecast. Uh, but at the time, we built a detector. And that has become the first FDA-cleared seizure monitor out mm -hmm. there now on the market for ages six and up. Uh, we've gotten a, multiple FDA clearances now. And it is amazing to hear from families that they are using this technology that originally you know, was built for a different purpose uh, to understand when a loved one, like uh, one story I just heard, the mom was, she was in the shower and her phone went off, uh, alerting her to the fact that her daughter's embrace smartwatch indicated she might be having a seizure. She goes running out of the shower to check on her daughter in her bedroom, finds her face down in bed, blue and not breathing flips her over, her airway was clear, she takes breaths and was fine. I turned blue reading this, <laughs> thinking, oh dear, you know, what if, what if the device uh, didn't work? What if it wasn't charged? What if, what if? She says, it's okay, I know no technology is perfect, um, but this got me there in time to save my daughter's life. Good science. Good science and I think listening to someone who knows much better than any of us knows mm -hmm. what we should be doing uh, can guide us to um, shaping the science, the technology to be used for purposes that we don't even know, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if we listen and follow the guidance, I think we can do a much better job. This watch is an example of technology that can augment artificial intelligence, enabling it to understand, sort of understand, what you're feeling and then respond appropriately. We built a lot of wearables early on to try to understand what was going on inside people's uh, bodies when they were experiencing different emotions. In particular, most emotion theorists don't think about stress. They think about happy, sad, angry, states like that. And we noticed that stress and frustration were the two most frequent emotions around technology. So we built wearables to understand that. Where is the technology up to? I mean, how good is this stuff at detecting human emotion? And a follow-up to that, what, what can you see in the next, say, five to ten years? Human emotion is much more than a set of small signals that our technology can detect. There are the outward things. It can see Facial that your brows are going yeah. up, mm. that you're smiling, that you're frowning. And even that we know people can fake, right? It doesn't mean that you're feeling what your face shows. However, if you also sense the context around it, like I just cracked a joke and then I saw you look like you got it and then you burst out laughing. If there is that contingency in an environment, in a context, we can start to say, hey, he thought that was funny, right? He, he felt joy at that. Uh, and similarly with sadness and anger in so many states, we can infer what you might be feeling through outward expressions, but we don't know exactly what you're feeling. We do not have, uh, through technology, insight into your innermost feelings, into your experience. The technology does not give that, even through brain scanning. We can see changes in blood flow, changes in electrical activity. It does not mean that we know what you're really feeling inside. Is this the fundamental unknown or chasm in AI that it doesn't have qualia. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't it, know it what it is, is to know. It is a fundamental chasm in AI. We haven't a clue how to give technology experience like humans have. And that experience includes qualia, uh, you know, how something feels. Qualia comes from the Latin qualis, and it means of what sort or of what kind, what a thing is like. In the philosophy of mind and consciousness, qualia refers to what a human experience feels like to the experiencer. The taste of wine, the feeling of looking at a sunset or whatever. It's the holy grail for people designing feeling computers. We've tried to do some things kind of like this. In the early days, we wanted to give a computer something equivalent to the sensation that it's displaying something on the screen, right? So we could put a sensor on the voltage channel, and when it measures a change of the pixels appearing on the screen, uh, it could 
set a bit inside the computer that outputs a label that says, oh, I felt myself display an image, right? But we know it's not, there's no self there. There's no feeling. Uh, there's no awareness. There's simply a simulation of that that we can build and give it for something that we have to fully understand before we can even build that simulation. What would you say then is a realistic hope for this technology in understanding human emotion, engaging human emotion? I don't know, give it a 20-year horizon. Yeah. What, what do you think is realistically hopeful? Realistically hopeful is we can build tools that help individuals better understand changes in their own emotions and help them communicate that better to those around them, hopefully under their control, not read by people they don't want to share it with. This is a, a big concern as we progress this technology. And for example, if you are somebody who has dealt with uh, depression, which is afflicting you know, half of society with this pandemic, in the future, let, let's say you get well, most people get well, uh, in the future, you might want early warning signs that you're drifting, again, that you're slipping down into a state that you don't want to go back to. Uh, what are the changes in your physiology, in your behavior, in your sleep patterns, in your social patterns that are, in an evidence-based way, contributing to the likelihood that you're slowly slipping back into depression? And, and it might be able to pick this up before you're even that's really right, That's right. It's very it. yeah. good at little bitty changes. Mm. We're not good at little bitty mm -hmm. changes. We don't notice it until all of a sudden, as one student described to me after she came back from getting well after being in a um, dealing with some mental illness, uh, she said, I was practically catatonic by the time my roommate said, you need to go get help. She did not see it happening to her. And her roommate did eventually and said, I'm taking you to medical, uh, which was good. And she got better. And most people will get better. Uh, but we are now realizing that a lot of medicine and quote unquote healthcare system waits till you're in bad shape before it does anything to help you. Technology could help us help ourselves earlier. It could help prevent cancer cells from growing into something that you have to treat with massive uh, surgery and chemo and radiation. It could help, uh, you know, prevent most cases of depression. And I think it could also help with a lot of other kinds of mental illness. So our uh, hope is that by bringing the technology together with people, not to replace people, not to build AI that does things uh, that, you know, take human jobs, uh, but AI that helps people do their jobs better, that helps people be healthier, live better, and helps us understand and better solve problems that we don't fully understand right now. I think that's the power of affective computing. Science fiction, my least favorite genre, does at least have a knack for portraying scientific longings. In 2014, the film Her won an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for Best Original Screenplay. So director Mark assures me. It's about an operating system, just like Professor Picard was describing, one that understands how you are feeling. Joaquin Phoenix plays an awkward man who suddenly feels understood by a computer. <laughs> was that funny? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good, I'm funny. <laughs> so how can I help you? Oh, it's just more that everything just feels disorganized. That's all. You mind if I look through your hard drive? Um, okay. Okay, let's start with your emails. You have several thousand emails regarding LA Weekly, but it looks like you haven't worked there in many years. Oh, yeah. I, I think I was just saving those because well, I thought maybe I wrote something funny in some of them. But the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some funny ones. I'd say there are about 86 that we should save. We can delete the rest. Okay. Okay? Can we move forward? That's the dream, I suppose. But how good is our tech today? So, it, so it's getting better and better at detecting the human emotions. Um, but can it affect human emotions? Yes, yeah, yeah. When I defined affective computing, I defined it as computing that relates to arises from or deliberately affects human emotions, right? Because everything actually affects human emotions. We just usually don't notice it. Human emotions are, uh, I mean, the, the common conception is, oh, he looks angry or happy. 
Uh, but the fact is they're more like weather. They are always there. They're always in the background. And we may not notice them until it's like a spectacularly beautiful blue sky, light breezy day, or a tornado or a hurricane. Uh, then, of course, it gets our attention, right? But the weather is always there. The emotions are always there. And they're always gradually helping us regulate our thoughts, our actions, our perceptions, what comes in and how we, how we interpret it. And that is important for healthy functioning, that they're there helping us make these constant trade-offs between complex, unpredictable inputs and too much information for us to deal with it all perfectly logically. We have to deal with some things as more important than others. We have to have emotion help us figure out what that is, what matters. If I'm depressed and anxious, can you see the technology one day being able to have an effect on, yeah. on my positivity? One of my students in, for a class project took her Twitter feed, ran affective computing sentiment analysis on it constantly, and thresholded to, to uh, mark as green the posts that contained more of what the AI thought was positive sentiment, and as red those that the AI thought was more negative sentiment. This it's is not, Twitter? It's not perfect. Yeah, on Twitter. <laughs> That's a black hole um, of emotion. <laughs> gave you a choice of whether or not you wanted to see that red and green highlight, uh -huh. and whether you just wanted to emphasize the red or the green or a mix. And then also if you wanted it to adjust your post. Hmm. Now, I chose to be a user in this. She also did a really nicely designed randomized control trial looking at whether this affected people, and it did in a positive way. Personally, it affected me by making me more aware of how some negative things were drawing me in. And I was reading them yeah. over and over. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's negative. So is that, so is that. Like looking in at a fact, car wreck, you can't look away. Yeah, in fact, yeah. a couple of these people I was following were only posting negative stuff. Yeah. You click on them and it was all red. And I thought, unfollow. <laughs> like, this is making me feel like crap. And mm. there wasn't any, like, great insight from it either, right? The, the negative feeling was mm. dominating. In fact, we now know that from the Wall Street Journal's digging into Facebook, that they had changed some algorithms to up the weights on posts that made people angry, which made them shared more, yeah. which, of course, you know, wow. polarizes our society, right, when it starts uh, going viral. So we know that technology not only affects us all the time, but can affect us in these very negative, amped up, uh, you know, one would call it a positive feedback in engineering, but it's really negative escalation that's happening. This is a major concern with forging links between artificial intelligence and human emotions. If robots can perceive emotions and respond to them, they can also affect and maybe manipulate them. Here's Pepper, the humanoid robot from SoftBank Robotics. Pepper can converse and even crack jokes. Is there going to be a robot uprising? I try to stay out of politics. Are you going to take over the world? Look, I'm barely keeping up with you in this conversation. I'm not taking over anything but your heart. <laughs> I mean, true, I love you. Pepper isn't exactly a threat to the human race. Production was halted last year. But machine learning at the level of algorithms, I guess everything is algorithms, is already having some negative effects. The Wall Street Journal investigation that Roz mentioned found that algorithms developed to maximise interaction on Facebook were making it an angrier place. Facebook's own data scientists revealed in internal memos, quote, misinformation, toxicity, and violent content are inordinately prevalent among reshares. So Facebook's integrity team came up with a number of potential fixes to limit the algorithm's tendency to reward outrage and lies. But the boss apparently wasn't super happy. The Journal reported that Mark Zuckerberg, quote, resisted some of the proposed fixes, the documents show, because he was worried they might hurt the company's other objective making users engage more with Facebook. This is a concrete example of how artificial intelligence in pursuit of billions in revenue can actually mess with our emotions and harm us. And the thing is, artificial intelligence may not have an equal capacity for producing positive emotions, at least not yet. 
Facebook itself has tried to use AI to clean up the platforms. They've tried to detect harmful speech, for example, and then sideline it. But a 2019 investigation found that AI isn't very good at this. The FB boffins themselves reckon AI will struggle to detect even 10 to 20% of harmful speech in the medium term. I guess the question is, can we really rely on AI to understand, let alone guard, human emotional health? Wouldn't it be great if there were an add-on function to Twitter and Facebook and everything? There's, I want happy ones today. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, you could do that. You could say, I just want the happy ones. Mm. And I found I didn't want just the happy ones, right? Mm. You want to know if there's a tragedy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very important that we not think of affective computing and and trying to impact people's feelings as just trying to make them happy all the time, like Mm -hmm. Brave New World, take Mm -hmm. your Soma, cheer up, you know, don't experience the reality of life. Healthy emotional functioning uh, includes being able to enter into sadness with another person. In fact, one of the signs that people are coming out of depression is if you put them in a conversation with somebody sharing something negative, can they make an affiliative frown? Yeah. Can they actually share a mm. look of sadness? Mm. If they're really struggling, they may not be able to do that. They may not be able to enter into that with somebody else. But if you can enter into that with somebody else, that is really healthy functioning. So this whole area is really the intersection of psychology and technology, isn't it? It is. It's psychology and technology. It's neuroscience and technology. Mm -hmm. It's uh, social science and technology. It's very much trying to understand what helps people flourish and then trying to reshape the future of technology uh, to respect humans and not to replace humans. When psychology, neuroscience, and technology reach their zenith together, will we then have true effective computing? Artificial intelligence that not just helps us in our feelings, but actually itself feels. Rosalind Pickard tells us what she reckons after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving but there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. Probably the best known example in certain circles, of the feeling computer is Data, the android in the series Star Trek, The Next Generation. Boy, Director Mark is a pig in mud in this episode. Anyway, Data gets an upgrade chip in order to know a bit better what it's like to be human, and with mixed results. At first, I was unprepared for the unpredictable nature of emotions. However, Having experienced 261 distinct emotional states, I believe I have learned to control my feelings. They will no longer control me. Well, I hope you're successful, Dana. Spoiler. 
Data ends up finding his lost cat and starts crying for joy. Except he's confused why tears go with happiness. The algorithm was correct, I guess. Tears of joy are a thing. But the understanding of the experience was a little off. So even director Mark's beloved science fiction writers are aware of the complexity of the problems facing real-world scientists like Professor Picard. Do you ever think in the end emotions, human emotions, just boil down to mathematics? They're algorithms. I'm an engineer and I can look at just about anything and try to fit an algorithm to it and fit mathematics to it. I can look at it as there's an input, there's an output, and I can try to mathematically represent those and build a very complicated mathematical function that, given those future inputs, will produce those uh, similar, hopefully, outputs, if I think those are good outputs. That's something we designers of technology do. We look at the world that way. We see systems, we see functions, and we even try to look at a lot of things humans do in that way, which uh, if you couple that with a lot of arrogance we can tend to have, can make us think that we could simulate any of it in a machine. Uh, But that does not mean that we are uh, building what it is. We are building a model. We are building a simulation. A problem is that the words used to describe models and simulations are long and wordy. And when we use those publicly, people's eyes get heavy. (laughs) So we use shorthand catchy phrases like, oh, well, I, I won't say this. I won't say the computer has emotions. But the press will describe what I'm doing as, oh, you gave the computer emotions, right? I'm like, no. And I give this paragraph explaining what we actually did. And then they get bored and they say, she gave the computer emotions. Yes, and so this comes back to that um, that, that dilemma I, I, I talked about earlier, that really these, these computers, this technology isn't able to become human in that psychological, emotional sense. Um, and, and I'm sure some of my leader, uh, listeners who are you know, really into science and just think it's a matter of time, you know, the science is just going to get better and better and better. There's no, there's no real chasm. It's just we're in, we're incremental... Uh, moves toward actually creating conscious, emotional persons in these uh, devices. What do you make of that? I am an optimist, uh, but I also think that the the movies have misled us to, to some extent about what machines can actually do. Those robots that look really humanoid, they've got humans inside of them, right? They've got animations. They've got humans controlling and them. And C-3PO gets sad. So, you know, I've seen it well, on the screen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Douglas Adams wrote about the Marvin the Paranoid Android long before too, right? And the robot getting sad. I remember his happy people. Roz is talking about a science fiction story I have actually read. Or at least I saw the TV series, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The Sirius Cybernetics Corporation created robots with GPP, genuine people personalities, with interesting results. Life. Don't talk to me about life. No one even mentioned it. And Roz says the results Douglas Adams wrote about in this series illustrate some of the problems with affective computing. I remember his happy people lifter, the elevator that tried to cheer people up when they got inside it. And that's more of like an early affective computing environment technology. And you know what? People hated the happy people lifter. They didn't want the lift that cheered up people. They wanted to be what they wanted to be. Hmm. We didn't want the elevator making us happy. We don't want computers controlling us. Hmm. In fact, one thing we learned early on when several people came to us to, quote unquote, help people on the autism spectrum regulate their stress. Okay, their stress is getting out of control. They're having a meltdown. Uh, the family says it looks like it came from nowhere. My my kid was calm, and now he's injurious to himself and those around him. What happened? What caused him to snap? And so we started measuring and learning about this. Uh, and one of the things we learned was that the person experiencing this meltdown also feels it coming out of the blue sometimes, and they do want something to help them calm down, but they don't want a device to just start squeezing them <laughs> or calming them down. They want control over it. Mm. They want uh, they want an, a forecast. They want a little bit of a warning. 
so that they maintain control and then they want more control over their environment, what can calm them. So we don't want an automated AI that just applies like a deep pressure hug to you instantly when your physiology gets out of whack. Um, but we might want an AI that lets you know your physiology is about to get out of whack and makes it easy for you to say, yes, give me that hug right now, yeah. right? That enhances your control. Does all of this stuff um, cause you to think more deeply about what a human being is? Yeah, yeah. All of science causes me to think more deeply about hmm. what a human being is. The more I learn, the more I realize we have to learn, the more I learn about the brain, the more I see how mysterious and amazing how it works is, the more I learn about its electrical or biochemical or hormonal or the proteins or the genes, all these different aspects. There's more, more, more. Each piece of it is fabulously more complex than we ever imagined as we as we learn more. And it's it's awe-inspiring. It leaves you speechless, leaves me speechless. And it makes me feel like our work will never be done. When will we, will we ever be able to fully understand how humans work? And uh, as scientists here in this world, it looks like we're going to need more than what we have here to fully understand ourselves. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. One of the very interesting things about the ancient portrayal of Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels is his varied emotional states. He's presented as very much a man in touch with his feelings. That sounds sweet and relevant in our modern context, where emotions are valued, sometimes overvalued. But in the first century Mediterranean world, just about everyone felt the pressure to conform to the insights of perhaps the most popular school of thought in the day, the Stoics. Almost everything in the Greek philosophical tradition, but especially in the Stoic tradition, critiqued the emotions and demanded that the truly wise person was the person driven by rational impulses only, unaffected by what was seen as the lower sensual impulses of, say, fear, ecstasy, despair, exuberance, and so on. But when ancient folk opened up a gospel and expected to find a sage in complete mastery of his affections, what they found instead was a man of passion who wept at a friend's funeral, John 11, or over Jerusalem's ignorance of God, Luke 19, who got demonstrably angry at religious hypocrisy, even overturning the money tables in the temple, Mark 11, or sweating in anguish in the garden late at night as he was about to be arrested, Luke 22, not to mention crying out on the cross in Mark 15, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not so much a cry of doubt as a visceral identification with anyone who has felt abandoned by God. Perfectly in line with this are the words of the Apostle Paul shortly after Jesus, urging Christians to, quote, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Romans 12. It seems the emotional intelligence of Jesus was meant to characterize the emotional life of the Christian. Now, we know this was a dramatic point of contrast with the mainstream way of thinking in the ancient world. In fact, there is a lengthy section in one of my favorite ancient authors explaining and defending the Christian view of the emotions. The great Lactantius, whom we've mentioned in other episodes, writing around the year 300, disputed the Stoics' general disapproval of emotions in these words. It is good to walk straight and bad to go astray. So too, it is good to be emotionally moved in the right direction and bad in the wrong direction. If lust does not stray outside its lawful bed, it may be very strong, but it is not bad. It is not a sickness to have feelings of anger, as the Stoics say. It is only a sickness to exercise anger on someone you shouldn't or at an inappropriate time. The emotions themselves cannot be checked, nor ought they to be. They should be aimed in the right direction. Divine Institutes, Book 6, Section 16. 
Lactantius is no doubt thinking of his master, Jesus, who didn't deny the affections, but directed his emotions to the good. The fact is, it was this biblical affirmation of the emotions, not the stoic shunning of emotions, that won the ancient argument and reshaped Western culture. It's true we can now be too emotional, of course, too driven by the passions, and that is a problem. It's the problem Stoicism was trying to fix with its sledgehammer. But the emotions themselves are good. They are human. They are also divine. I'm glad there is a Lord in the universe who is furious at injustice, joyful at our fortune, and whose love for us could even move him to tears. You can press play now. You've been reasonably public about your Christian faith. Uh, I saw a tweet the other day from you that uh, wished everyone a Merry Christmas, but then you said the word became flesh. So you're like one of those real, you know, (laughs) Christians um, quoting scripture and so on. Um, But you haven't always been uh, a believer. Am I right? Correct. So how did that happen? I was one of those uh, smart, proud kids who did well in school and thought that religion was for people who weren't very smart. I was, you know, describing this, I realized how ignorant I was. Uh, But at the time, you know, hey, you're a good student. Your idea of religion comes mainly from the news where you hear of televangelists doing stupid things or the assumption that people believe in God like a little green alien or a a made up, uh, you know, a cosmic bellhop. They ask for mm-hmm. things to happen and those things don't happen. Come on, like, wake up. I thought it was for weak people who needed a crutch. Uh, later, of course, I learned that we all need a crutch of some sort. But what happened was my neighbors I babysat for, who were really cool people, doctor, smart, hip young family, uh, kept inviting me to go to church. And I did not want to go to church. I did not want to wear a skirt. I thought you had to wear a skirt to go to church. I just really didn't want to waste time being associated with any of that stuff. So I would pretend to have a stomach ache. Or, and uh, that happened several weeks in a row. That's risky with a doctor. It's risky with a doctor. Yeah, so how smart I thought I was. Uh, eventually, they wised up and realized I didn't want to go to church after weekly stomach aches and said, you know, what matters most is not that you go to church, it's what you believe. Have you read the Bible? And I realized the Bible was the best-selling book of all time. I've heard it's even not put on bestseller list today because it would be number one week after week, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the best-selling book of all time. Every year except 2007. Really? When Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows outdid the Bible. Really? For one year. But every other year, the Bible is the biggest seller. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you, J.K. Rowling, for for Harry Potter. It's a lot of fun. Uh, But I realized that to be the educated person that my young self thought I was, I should read the Bible. Mm. They suggested that I start with Proverbs read one a day for a month. What an interesting and suggestion. Yeah. People people tell me nobody ever suggests starting with Proverbs. They say but, Gospel of John or Gospel right, of Luke. Right, yeah. right. Which, which in my case, it was good because I started reading Proverbs expecting the Bible to be full of made-up gobbledygook, mm. gobbledygook, stupid stuff, apparitions, all this crazy stuff. And instead, you know, a few lines into Proverbs, I found myself uh, recognizing wisdom and recognizing that I had a lot to uh, to learn and feeling a bit like, wow, uh, from Proverbs. And it, it was good for my egotistical uh, self to be confronted with something that was full of greater wisdom mm. than I was getting from anywhere else. I read not only all of the Proverbs, Uh, I realized some friends of mine who were going through confirmation in their churches were were challenging each other to read the whole Bible. They got this uh, version called The Way that allowed you to check off a box for each book of the Bible. And I started reading three books of the Old Testament and two of the New Testament every day. 
Uh, I read through the Bible in a year. I found myself in the course of doing that uh, quite conflicted because I did not want to believe in God or any of this stuff, and yet I felt I was, uh, I, I felt like, not like a neurological case where a person has voices in their head and they need to go to the doctor, but I felt like I was being spoken to in a way that was very deep and I could not keep ignoring, uh, and it troubled me. Professor Picard tells me she really fought the idea of becoming a Christian. She began reading church history. She started studying other religions. She visited churches in France. She enrolled in adult Bible classes and challenged the preachers she heard at every point. That would have been fun. She was a good scientist about it all. But the thing is, it only increased her conviction that there was a God. But what to do with Jesus? That was her stumbling block. Those with an Underceptions Plus subscription can get the whole story. It's awesome. But to put it bluntly, Roz ran a kind of experiment. I um, decided to run an experiment um, to change who was Lord of my life. Instead of that being me, which it had been, I thought, you know, if God's willing to do this, if Jesus is willing to uh, be Lord of my life, uh, got to do a better job than I would, right? And so I handed over the reins. But how did uh, you get over that Jesus hurdle that you mentioned a moment ago? Like God, vague concept of God. Yeah, okay, tick. But but you were wary about Jesus being central. So how did you find that? Yeah, I think it just came from reading and rereading the words of Jesus and hearing uh, preaching, you know, talking about those words, as well as learning more about historical evidence for Jesus. This wasn't some made-up thing, right? I mean, crazy talking to you about this, right? I would love to learn more about this from you. I read what I could get my hands on at the time, and your book didn't exist back then. But it was very eye-opening to realize that this is not a made-up thing, right? There is, you know, outstanding historical evidence. Uh, why don't we, why doesn't everybody know about this? Why do people keep treating this like a children's story? Many people think it might be okay for a scientist to have a faith of some sort, but they need to compartmentalise that faith. Religion should have nothing to do with scientific work. Professor Rosalind Picard doesn't quite see it that way. When, when I'm actually building a mathematical model or, uh, you know, running a behavioral human studies experiment. There are scientific methods that we practice that you can practice whether you're a person of faith or not, mm. right? There are best practices. Uh, same when you're doing history of religion, right? You, you want to have the best historical practices. That said, behind all science, there's a scientist. There's a person who values some things more than others, who does or doesn't care about people, uh, who does or doesn't care about, uh, well, actually one thing they almost all care about is truth, mm. trying to understand what is true. And what's super interesting is if you start probing the foundations of that wanting to find what is true, it's presupposing that some things are true and some things aren't, that there is a meaningful world out there that some, some cause has brought about a world where it's not all just random, purposeless, meaningless, where it doesn't matter what I say or what I do in my experiment, but that, these thing, that, uh, that an ethic, a truthfulness matters. And if you start probing that, then you're not doing science anymore. You're in another space. Uh, the philosophers will say, that's our space. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, but even the philosophers can't get you uh, out of our own minds and world and universe and, and dimensions and physics and all of space and time, right? We have to go uh, somewhere beyond all of what our human mind can handle. And it turns out, Ross's Christian faith played a pivotal role in the direction of her groundbreaking scientific career. Now, what made me uh, say I'm willing to throw away my whole career 
and, you know, take on embarrassment uh, for some science that I think actually needs to be done. That's important here. Well, it was my faith. It was that I talked to, uh, in prayer, to God, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to work on? Uh, what do you think is most important? And uh, in, in fact, all of the affective computing stuff, it's even a little more embarrassing than that. I, it came to me once when I was reading the scriptures and I was convicted that I should stop grumbling so much. I had this long commute that I grumbled about. And one night I, after the scriptures where it was like, you know, stop your grumbling, don't spend this commute grumbling, um, on the long commute, the affective computing ideas came into my head. Uh, and I like, I don't want to work on this. This will ruin my career. This is embarrassing. This is risky. This is crazy. Then I um, arranged a lunch with the former president of MIT, who I was on a grant proposal with, uh, Jerry Wiesner, who our building was named after. And I asked, he had been science advisor to John F. Kennedy, an amazing uh, leader and thinker. And I asked Jerry, you know, what, what should junior faculty like me be doing? And he said, you must take risks. You must take risks, right? And then I, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I started seeking wisdom and input from a lot of people. I kept seeking the truth and the science. I kept reading. More useful things were coming to me. And gradually, this all came together. Uh, in my book, I say, it, um, you know, in the acknowledgments, uh, sola deo gloria, right? This was all an act of faith. I remember praying, okay, God, if I'm throwing away my whole career with this, I know you must have a better plan, right? And so it was it was stepping out in faith because the engineers around me were saying, like, this is, don't get associated with this, right? I knew it was difficult. Uh, of course, it turned out to be very um, successful in the sense of the technology career-wise, right? It became a field, there's a respected journal, there's uh, respected communities, professional societies, lots of people working on it. And I'd say really amazing community with engineers, psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, lots of different kinds of expertise coming together, usually with an amazing heart to try to help improve people's lives with this technology, not to just make computers more emotional. The cliche is that um, the kind of robust Christian faith that you're talking about, you know, prayer, Jesus, you know, all these things, um, is really rare in science. Now, here you are at MIT, you know, one of the great establishments for science in the world. Is there that your experience? Are, there are a lot of Christians at MIT. There are a lot of Christians in the faculty. There are a lot of Christians in the leadership. We've had a number of presidents of MIT who are devout Christians, uh, devout praying, um, engaging in Bible study seeking God's will in their lives daily. Uh, we may not be in people's face with our faith, but it's very powerful here. And it's, um, you know, it's it guides uh, everything we choose to do, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we follow that guidance. That, that's another issue, right? None of us is... Uh, perfect at that, mm -hmm. my, myself included. There are times when I should slow down and listen a little bit more instead of running forward with the scientific community. So we, we need God's input and God's wisdom and guidance for our way, and especially in science, because these are powerful tools. Rosalind Picard, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. My, my pleasure to talk with you. Hey Siri, remind me this afternoon to buy flowers for my darling buff. Okay, added to today's reminders. Now that's emotional intelligence. If you like what we're doing, please head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, preferably a favourable one. Go to the Underception store and pick up one of our T-shirts or purchase a signed copy of My Bullies and Saints. And why not consider subscribing to the Underceptions Plus service and get loads of bonus content we can't fit in to a single episode. And if you can, click donate 
at undeceptions.com. Help us cover the costs of this pod. I really appreciate it. While you're there, send me a question and I'll try to answer it in the upcoming Q&A episode. And if you want more content with the Undeceptions vibe, check out the other podcasts in the network. With all due respect, with Megan Paldatoire and Michael Jensen, Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat, and stay tuned for some other gems coming down the pipeline in the Undeceptions network. Next episode. It's one of the most famous and controversial stories in the Bible. It's the story of Noah's Ark, the flood that destroys everything, and one family who survives. Is there any truth to it? See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by Mark Hadley, who's had enough insults for one episode. Editing by Richard Humwee. Social media by Sophie Hawkshaw. Executive assistance by Lindy Leveston. Siobhan McGuinness is our web librarian. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast.